Welcome to Mind at Work. I'm your host, Ruby Nunes. I interview world-class experts and executives to uncover the evidence-based practices that will improve mental health and well-being in the workplace. In this episode, I speak with Amanda Matichek. Amanda has over 15 years of consulting experience in the areas of leadership training and development, talent management, organizational development, and coaching. As an external consultant, she has facilitated hundreds of sessions with various audiences ranging from frontline retail managers to global CEOs and executives. In this episode, we chat about the basics of neurodiversity, the importance of having a neurodiverse workplace, creating opportunities for people with different neurotypes, how to open the conversation to improve communication, and much more. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, this is going to be a good one. I'm really looking forward to this chat. It's a new topic, relatively new topic for me, and I get really excited about learning this stuff. So uh, I want to dive right in and uh and and learn a lot from you and and you've already shared some wonderful resources that have helped me become more familiar with this topic uh and shed some new light on how i think about it so i'm really excited to dig in deep okay so the topic today is neurodiversity so can you explain to us a little bit more what neurodiversity is yeah absolutely it's a big fancy uh term to basically say that we're all wired differently Uh, neurodiversity really is kind of that full range of human neurological variation. So how our brains function and the behaviors that come along with that. And so uh, often when we talk about neurodiversity, we think of things like uh, people who have autism or are on the autism spectrum, Um, people who might have ADHD, for example, Uh, people who have Tourette syndrome. So people whose brains really do work differently. So they interact with the environment differently. They process information differently. They interact socially differently. Um, Their behaviors might be different. Uh, And so when we look at neurodiversity, it really is that full, or I at least like to look at it from the perspective of it really is a spectrum. Um, You know, all of us, you know, we all are wired differently, as I said. Um, And we talk often about things like someone who has a more male brain or a more female brain, right? Someone who's more logical, someone who's more emotional. Um, The neurodivergence really does kind of take us into the realm of people's brains that really do interpret information differently that really impacts their behavior. Um, So that's kind of, you know, generally speaking, what neurodiversity is. That's really helpful. So traditionally we've had conversations around differences in people's appearance and differences in people's practices or uh, beliefs, but neurodiversity hasn't received as much of the spotlight when it comes to, especially in the workplace, when it comes to how do you in- integrate somebody that has a different neurotype? And yeah. like, why do you, do you think that there's a reason behind that? Or, or do you think that there's a shift now going into maybe the conversation becoming a bit more popular? Yeah, well, I think there's a a couple of reasons at play here, right? So one of them is uh, the fact that it isn't a common, I think, social category, if you will. So, and it's not a visible social category. It's not as visibly present as gender. Uh, It doesn't have the same sort of history, or we haven't acknowledged the history 
of how people who think differently might have been either oppressed or excluded um, in in society as well as in the world of work. So um, the fact that it isn't as visible as race or as gender, um, it isn't as socialized as something like, um, you know, gender identity or sexual orientation, it really hasn't received the attention that some of these other, you know, forms of diversity have. In fact, in, I think because it's invisible to some extent, right? It is only until you get to interact with a person that we understand how their brain functioning impacts the interaction um, that we actually start to see, oh, wait, there's something different here. Uh, And so I think in part because it isn't as visible and we really haven't thought about I mean, you know, the world of how the brain works in mental health and organizations as fully either. It's kind of been that that topic of if it has to do with mental health um, or if it has to do with brain functioning, then that's something we kind of put to the side. We're just not dealing with that yet. So I think there's, you know, part of that social timing uh, in terms of now is kind of the time for us to be talking about it because it's it's starting to impact us a lot more in terms of both society and the, and the workplace. Yeah, and if COVID, if COVID gave us anything positive, it has been the opportunity to talk about a lot of these things like mental health and now neurodiversity becoming a bit more popular in organizations and then coming up with strategies on how to create a, a more neurodiverse um, culture. Now, why do you think it's important to have a more neurodiverse culture at your organization? Mm, yeah, so... One of the things we know, and you know, we know this from all of the research on diversity and inclusion in the workplace, right? When you have a more diverse team, you have greater perspectives. You have different ways of thinking at the table, right? Because people bring different experiences. Um, they, diff- they bring different cultural expectations. They bring different ways of thinking. And we know that when your brain works differently, you think differently. And when you can bring that different perspective to the table, you're adding to the aspect of innovation, of creativity, of collaboration, um, and of productivity. And so we know that, uh, you know, innovation requires diversity of thinking. And and that comes out, uh, you know, clearly amongst different neurotypes that bring their different, you know, nuances and their different strengths. Um, But I think also, you know, when we look at it, um, the neurodiverse population really hasn't been uh, included in a way that's allowed them to really showcase their value. And so I think it's important for organizations as we are experiencing these 21st century complexities and these challenges that are really asking us to think differently and to solve problems differently, um, that we really need to be including more diverse thinkers in how we solve these problems. Um, so I think there's there's both the business imperative of we need the innovative thinking, but there's also the social component of we need everybody contributing to the solution of our, our human challenges in the workplace. Um, and so I really think we need to take the step back and say, you know, are we really being completely inclusive of, you know, of the different ways of people thinking and experience in the world? Yeah, that's helpful. And one thing, so one of the resources you sent out that was pretty astonishing in all candidness is pretty astonishing to me, but the CDC stated that uh, based on a study, the CDC uh, released that one in six children have neurodevelopmental challenges. That's more than 15% potentially of the future workforce will have a different neurotype. That's huge. 
It's huge. And and the the estimates are that today it's one in ten. You know, so ten percent of our current workforce is actually neurodivergent. We just may not be aware of it and may not know it. And so when you think of it from you know participation in the labor force, and you look at potentially fifteen percent of the population or our future workforce might be excluded if we aren't active in creating a more welcoming and more inclusive work environment and being intentional about creating the opportunities for uh, fuller participation, you know, then we really have to step back and say, you know, so what are we saying about the future of humanity if we're not willing to, to make that, uh, that leap? Um, and, you know, what's interesting is, is there's both an increase in the prevalence rates um, across all types of neurotypes, right? And so um, I think the majority of the that study also pointed that, the, you know, there's been a huge increase in people with autism spectrum disorder. There's also been a, you know, big increase in people with ADHD. Um, and so those are two of the more common neurotypes that we talk about. But there's also been, you know, a greater increase in people who have things like Tourette syndrome, who have things like dyslexia or dyscalculia, still fumbling over that one, um, or dyspraxia, right? Those are learning disabilities that impact, you know, either your ability to work with um, words, your ability to work with numbers, or your ability to actually work with, with written symbols. And so as we experience and, and see greater evolution of different neurotypes, we really have to look at um, how are we making sure that all of these, these neurotypes feel like they can participate actively in the labor force. And I think that's sort of the the social uh, the social call to us is to say, all right, you know, we, we there's such a great call for us to make sure that from a, there's racial equality, that there's gender equality. We really have to think of is there really you know neurological equality as well, right? And and to to even clarify further, like this isn't a charity, right? Like this strategy is not a charity. This strategy is an opportunity for organizations to think about their growth differently, right? Because just because you might have a neurological or neurodevelopmental challenge does not make you any less equipped to solve problems and problems and challenges than your peers. All it means is that you think about a problem and a challenge in a different way, right? And you yeah. get to that point in a different way. Is that fair? Yeah. Is that fair assumption? Absolutely. And and if you'll allow me, I'll just going to jump into that because it, oftentimes we look at it from a bit of a medicalized point of view. All right. And so we look at neurodiversity and we talk about it, you know, in terms of autism or autism spectrum disorder, or we talk about attention deficit disorder. Um, and we have this way of looking at it from a medicalized point of view. Um, when people are operating outside of typical behaviors, uh, right, we look at how is it that they are different from or disordered from normal. Um, and we need to have this, like, quite frankly, we need to have a medical perspective on this so that people can get um, the support, the accommodations, the therapies, the counseling they need to actually be able to, to manage and to be able to um, help themselves grow and, and evolve. I really do prefer, though, to look at it from the perspective of, um, you know, different intelligences. And so Howard Gardner called, talks about uh, multiple intelligences. Like, you know, we have people who are stronger in visual spatial intelligence, people who are stronger in terms of emotional intelligence, um, musical intelligence, logical intelligence, physical intelligence. And so when we look at neurodiversity as not just being about outside of the range of normal thinking, but rather strengths in different intelligences, then we can start to tap into really different talents. 
right? And and we see this when we look at, you know, some of the great entrepreneurs, um, you know, Richard Branson, uh, you know, he's been very open about his ADHD. And we see great, a great number of entrepreneurs who have that brain that is willing to be a lot more risk-taking. Um, they're willing to, they have a greater attention span for more stimulus, so they can pay attention to information and process it so much faster, which allows them to make decisions faster. Um, as I said, take more risks and have more drive and energy. And so we need to be able to harness that and capture that in order to be able to, I think, advance, you know, different ventures, different ways of working. Yeah, it seems like we look, traditionally, we've looked too far at the negatives or the downsides of what uh, somebody with uh, a different neurotype brings to the table, rather than looking at the positives and the benefits that you'd get and what they actually bring into the organization. One of the things, too, that I enjoyed reading that for me seemed completely logical. It just seemed like something that every organization should be doing anyways, which was around how if once you implement a strategy and we'll get into like what goes into an, uh, a, a strategy uh, of this type, but um, what one of the things that came out was how organizations need to really spend more time addressing people's needs in things like onboarding and hiring and how to effectively hire and what to look for and how to look for those things, how to effectively uh, institute communication practices in the organization, how to foster emotional intelligence, how to foster awareness. Like to me, you know, regardless of whether you have a neuro uh, a diverse strategy in place at your organization. Those just seem like common practices to me. Like that seems like that should already exist today, right? Like it doesn't seem like it's anything net new. Do you like, are you finding something different? Cause for me, I found that a little strange as being like, you need to make sure you do these things rather than saying that should be the status quo. Like you should just literally look for more people, but those practices should already exist. Yeah, you're right. You know, when we look at some of the practices and some of the, you know, best, the, you know, the gold standards around how do you create an inclusive environment for, for neurodivergent people, it really does kind of boil down to how do you just create incredibly good policies for humans? Um, because it really is about being open to individual consideration and clarity and transparency uh, and acceptance. And I think, you know, there are some some bedrocks around, you know, these are just good people practices. When we get into the neurodiversity, it's, it's about how do you become more comfortable with difference? Because to be honest, it does in, actually uh, implementing these policies requires us to be more comfortable with difference. Uh, and I think that's part of the challenge for organizations to really kind of put themselves in this in this mindset and even, even for managers to, to put themselves in the mindset of managing and working with, you know, neurodiverse people. Right. And so what, which, what should organizations look for then? So if they're going out to look at implementing a neurodiversity strategy, uh, what goes into it? What, what do they need to consider? Why don't you help us understand that a little bit more? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I don't purport uh, to be, you know, the, the strategist around this, but certainly know enough about, you know, organizational development to, to be able to speak on this in terms of um, you first need to look at how do you build awareness, right? And so, and first of all, you need to make this matter to you, right? So you need to have a purpose as to why your organization wants to create more inclusivity, whether it's because of the social responsibility component, um, the business ROI component, um, or just because it really does help 
to um, improve your ability to hire great talent. And so what organizations need to think about is what's their purpose for doing this? And that purpose really will drive how they look at um, the policies and the process they go about implementing their strategy. They first need to think about the awareness building piece, right? So how are you going to create awareness around the benefits, the needs, and the challenges of being a more inclusive uh, environment? And in that, you really have to start to talk about the stigma involved around mental health, mental well-being, um, and co neurocognitive functioning. You know, how are we becoming more accepting of people who act and at work, it's more behave differently, and so oftentimes it's the behavioral component that poses the biggest challenge for organizations. And so there is that awareness building strategy of destigmatizing and creating the understanding of the benefits for why this is valuable to the organization. And then the next thing you need to look for is really looking at your HR policies and processes that might be creating that systemic bias and, and creating those systemic barriers um, to hiring and acquiring you know, the talent that you're looking for. Um, you need to think about things from, you know, first of all, that recruitment stage, like, do you have an inclusive recruitment process? Are you creating a screening process that allows you to actually harness, you know, identify the talent as opposed to exclude it? Have you educated hiring managers and selection, you know, the selection process to make sure you're actively um, pulling that, you know, pulling out those talents? Um, then you need to look at, you know, from an onboarding perspective, what are you doing so you really need to go through all of your HR processes, and we can go into those a bit more detail, but just from a strategic standpoint, um, you need to look at those HR policies and practices that might be getting in the way. And then you need to look at your leadership practices. And so what are the leadership practices or the leadership development opportunities that are there to help support leaders and managers be able to effectively work and create teams of, you know, teams that are neurodivergent? So I think those are kind of the three big components is one, that awareness building piece, that examining your HR policies and, and processes, and then looking at that leadership development and leadership, um, leadership strategy around neurodiversity. So awareness, process, leadership, essentially, right. And would it be a why? So when I think about this, so obviously a lot of things are coming up and I'm thinking about, okay, so if I were to build my own team that had someone who had a different neurotype, like what would I do? And if you're just starting out, which I'm sure a lot of companies probably are, where they don't, probably don't have a neurodiversity strategy, would you kind of find and pilot that first slowly, kind of dip your toe in the water and say, I think that this manager or this leader is really suited to be able to have a little bit more patience, a little bit more empathy, a little bit uh, more experience? Like, would you approach it that way? Or am I thinking about this completely differently or and completely wrong? No, I think, you know, you're, you're, completely on track there. I think you need to figure out how, like, how do you start, right? You can't, you can't go big because you really, this is uh, important for everyone involved in the process. Um, and it has significant impact. So you do want to make sure that you're doing it thoughtfully um, and doing it in a way that you can pilot it with the right people to make sure that uh, you're going to ensure success. And so that might mean making sure that, you know, if you're looking to, to start to recruit, then you need to identify what roles are they best recruited for. So you need to look at your job design system and you need to say, you know, have we identified those roles where different neurotypes can flourish and where we can mitigate some of the challenges that come with how they present. 
And so once you've identified those roles, then you also need to identify where what teams will help them be successful. As you said, who are the managers that have the capacity, um, the bandwidth, because this would take extra time, it, you know, all change takes time, but who would have the capacity, the bandwidth and the leadership, you know, stance to be able to work well with individuals across the, you know, across the spectrum. How would, how would HR leaders who would likely be evangelizing this within their organization identify which roles are best suited for different neurotypes? Is there like a way that they can have more visibility in that? Yeah. And so there's, you know, certainly some great resources and, and actually um, some great consultancies out there that actually partner with organizations to help them do just that, to help them look at what are the capabilities and what are the strengths that different neurotypes bring to the table and what roles do you have where those those strengths are a good match. And so from the organization or the HR manager side, what you want to be looking at is getting down to the core essentials of the job, right? And so because uh, Listen, when you look at job descriptions these days, there's like the core aspects of what they really need to do. And then there's all these really, you know, great, nice to have socially acceptable skills or socially, you know, privileged skills, like great communication, ability to organize. So you need to make sure that you're first looking at what are those roles where the core skills are the skills where those strengths can really be harnessed. So those data analytics skills or those innovative and problem solving creative skills or those ability to see things in and operate with 3D visual images, right? So what are the roles where those skills are best likely to, to be um, highlighted and then kind of strip away some of those social niceties so that you can actually identify the fit between the, the core skills. Um, so I think the, the first startup job HR has to do is say, all right, what are those roles where we know those core skills would be uh, best suited for people who present with particular strengths? Right, that makes sense. So you, so you now you've identified, and we can come back to where you were, but we've identified how to align or match a uh, different neurotype to a, a role that the company is actively pursuing and start to adopt different practices in order to support that hiring type. So after you figure that part out, what would be the next step that they would have to sort of unpack? Would it be onboarding right away? Yeah, I think, well, I think you'd want to look at, um, you know, related to that is performance management. And so what, what would you put in place to support a performance management and accommodation? I think, you know, that, that needs to be thought through before you get to onboarding, because you want to make sure that you have those processes in place around how are you going to make sure that performance expectations are clear? How are you going to make sure that um, the manager supporting them understands how to accommodate appropriately so that performance can be uh, generated as opposed to having to be managed? So you'll want to make sure that in tandem, you're both looking at the job design and um, the, that match of skill. And then how do you support performance? Those two really do go hand in hand. And I think both people, right, the people involved, right? So HR has to work with you know, and oftentimes if, if it's, a you know, the roles reporting into specific managers, like this would be jointly done, I would hope, by the business and HR, um, that both the processes around um, recruiting and hiring and as well as um, the performance management processes are both considered before you're bringing people on. And you have the HR manager and the hiring manager working on how are we going to make sure that we're going to ensure success in terms of creating clear expectations and an understanding the accommodations will make 
So that that piece, the organization has to get in, in place before you're bringing people on. And now you're, you know, and now you're looking at, okay, so how do you create a welcoming environment and, and help people really start to integrate? So you want to make sure that you're giving people information about the organization in very clear and different mediums. So you want to make sure that people, and you want it tailored, right? So you want to make sure that you get to know the candidate and what they need in terms of how to onboard them. So this is where that individual consideration that um, is required when you're, you know, addressing different neurotypes is a good management practice period. You want to know the individual's needs to bring them on board. And then you want to make sure that, as I said, you're giving them clear information about what's expected. And that might mean like a very clear role description. You might want to give them a very clear understanding of the values and so normally values are kind of like those um, unwritten rules, but you want to crystallize them so that people know, hey, what gets recognized here and what's important around here. So you want to make sure people have that un understanding. And then you also want to make sure that the person knows their teams and some things that organizations, regardless of, of onboarding, you know, different neurotypes are doing. But one thing that organizations are doing are creating, you know, employee playbooks. Uh, and so it's an information package about each employee in terms of how do you work with me? What are my strengths? What are my challenges? What are my preferred communication styles? Uh, when do I work? What are some things you need to know about me? And so good organization or organizations that are doing this really well are having employees create their own, you know, employee playbook and sharing that amongst the team. And so people get to know their team members really well so that they know how to adapt and jive. And when you have the whole team doing that, it makes it easier for someone um, to, to be onboarded because they get to read the information and learn about their teammates in a really safe way before interacting with them. And I think that's one of the most important things, right, is to how do you help that person feel like they're understood? And how do you create awareness from the get-go so that people aren't left guessing? Because I think that's the biggest challenge is when people don't know, how do I interact with someone who thinks differently than me or someone who needs a different communication style? And so it's, it's helping to create clarity in that space where people feel uncertain yeah, that's that's yeah. really interesting. I, I love the approach where you and I've I've read it a few times as well. Where you have whether it's called an employee handbook or like a like a some sort of profile card or whatever, however you want to refer to it, yeah. where you have a lot of these preferences. So before you hop on a chat with somebody or when somebody joins your team, you can kind of get a clear view of the communication type, all that sort of stuff. Their person, maybe even personality traits, that sort of stuff that gives you maybe personality traits are probably a little too much information. I don't know. Uh, but it gives you a, a lot more perspective on how to, um, how to work with that individual, right. Yeah. And how to be a better and more, more, uh, effective team together. So you, there are obviously some practices that organizations need to look at before even thinking about implementing uh, this strategy. Then if they're, you know, if they're interested in doing it, there are also some things that they need to make sure they complete in order to implement the strategy. So that poses the next question, who should be doing this? Who should be implementing a neurodiverse strategy in their workplace? And how do you know if you're ready? How do you know if your organization is ready to move forward with this? Yeah, I think, you know, the that's a really important question. The who should, I mean, in my mind, we all should. Because as you said, you know, the practices that would support a more neurodiverse talent pool are the just are fundamentally good human practices. That said, um, I think that organizations that really do have the bandwidth to invest in people 
um, and those who are needing to have a talent pool that is diverse. And so organizations that are needing a lot of innovation, a lot of creativity, a lot of um, unique problem solving abilities, those are the organizations that might want to consider the, consider it from a value added perspective in terms of their productivity and, and what it could do in terms of their growth. I think a lot of forward-thinking companies are looking into this. Uh, you know, we do have companies like um, like SAP, like Hewlett Packard. Um, those are just the two that are coming off. But there's there's so many more that are investing in such strategies. I mean, in Canada, um, you know, MetroLynx is a company. CIBC, uh, some of the banks are looking at creating a more neurodiverse um, a strategy around neurodiversity. So companies need to be um, ready for it. And they, they you can assess that readiness in terms of the HR policies, right? And so those that already have um, forward-thinking HR policies uh, that are or that are taking the time to re-examine their policies from um, a bias perspective period. So if you're going through the exercise of looking at, you know, how do your policies and practices um, impact from a systemic racism perspective, you might want to take the time to say, how is this creating systemic bias period? Um, so if you're going to go through that process, why not start that process for, with by including a neurodiversity perspective as well? And I ask this question because I think, you know, I also understand that, and, and I often speak with folks about this, I believe personally that HR, the, the function or people and culture, et cetera, is generally underfunded and, and um, under-resourced to an extent, at least from as an outsider looking in and knowing how much work needs to go into like you know, uh, making change happen. So implementing the strategies that you're talking about and looking at things like stigma or biases within the workplace, like that's that's not something that happens overnight. That's something that takes a lot of time and effort. And couple that with everything else that folks have on their plate and all of those other responsibilities. Is there even like, do HR leaders look at this and say, I want to tackle one of these issues first, or are there, is there a way to like tackle all of them at the same time? And we mean all of them is, you know, neurodiversity, uh, gender equality, racial diversity, like all of these things that need to be addressed in the workplace. Like, do you kind of pick one and say, Hey, I'm going to go after this one. And then I'm going to fix that. Or do you go and essentially bucket it all into one category and tackle all of them at the same time? Yeah, I mean, that's, and that's a really good question. And it, it, I mean, it's, I, I don't mean for this to be a cop-out, but the organization has to know itself and to know its challenges and its bandwidth and where it is on it in terms of its diversity maturity. I think there are organizations that are, are way far ahead on the diversity and inclusion um, maturity, you know, uh, spectrum in terms of they already have really great programs for gender equality, for racial equality. And so they're able to tackle this as a new frontier and to say, okay, we're really going to invest in it. Other organizations might be facing this, this um, state of a bit of paralysis because they haven't really looked at the systemic bias. And maybe they don't have programs that address um, full systemic bias you know, uh, wholeheartedly. And so if they're at that stage, you might need to pick um, some key elements to say, what biases are we, are, do we need to tackle initially? And I would suggest that if you take the framework of a multidisciplinary approach and you get the right support, it is in your best interest to look at it kind of from holistically. Um, because as I said, these are all aspects of human differentiation and once we understand how to deal with human difference, 
the nature of that difference isn't quite as prevalent, right, in terms of a barrier, because we can start to say, I need to understand what your experience is as a human being. What are the what are the strengths and values you bring? And then what are the experiential challenges that I need to support you with? And once we can have that conversation about what are the experiential challenges I need to be aware of and support you with or either help remove obstacles and barriers for, then I can help manage you, I can help lead you, I can help develop processes and policies that will help include you. But quite frankly, I think, you know, we're best served when we look at it from a multi-perspective point of view so that we can get at the core of how do we create an inclusive human system. Right. And one of the things that is such to bring it back to, if you're a manager who's never had experience with somebody that's a different neurotype, or if you're an employee who's never worked with somebody with a different neurotype, you know, you, you need to understand what that means. Right. And there needs to be some form of communication or or potentially training. I don't know for people to understand how to work with somebody that thinks differently than they do. And is that something that happens? Do you like, do you sense that that's something that's needs to be implemented in a more structured way? Or is that more so just something that you kind of have the conversations about in within teams and, and elsewhere? Yeah, so I think there's, it's it's interesting, because as I, as I listen to you ask the question, I think, but we all think differently, like everybody that I work with thinks differently from me, nobody's taught me how to do, but, and so I think there is some part of people who are um, capable of working with people who think differently, because they're open, because they're willing to be curious, because they're willing to adapt. I do think that when we have a, a, a strategy to be more inclusive about neurotypes, we do need to have some formal education and awareness building. And I think there does need to be some formal training, especially when you're asking people to communicate differently. It's not my nature to be adaptive to your communication style, you know, for the general person. Like we don't think about that, but we have to teach people that in order for me to communicate effectively with you, I have to learn how you speak. I have to learn your language. I have to learn what resonates with you so that I can be an effective communicator. And so I have to learn how to adapt, but I can't do that if you're not telling me how or what are the skills that I need to do that. And so we have to open up that conversation and have that awkward, you know, what can be an awkward conversation about, so what makes you different? What makes me different? And what do you need me to do differently? And, and let me fail in trying because it's not normal for me to do this, right? Because we're asking neurotypicals to step out of neurotypical behavior, you know, and, 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 and that kind of makes it seem really simplistic, but we do really have to create some good old fashioned awareness building about how do we show up as more adaptive human beings so that we can connect based on your strengths and, and what you need help with and my strengths and what I need help with. Yeah, that's that's so important. And to that is what we we spoke about earlier, where we're talking about, you know, the practices and the processes and the culture that exists in an organization should be the same before and after you have a neurodiverse strategy, right? Because at the end of the day, it's important that you have a flexible culture, right? One that supports different forms of communication, constructive communication, potentially different scheduling as well, which is something we're obviously hearing a lot more about now and how people work with families and preferences and all that stuff and, um, and different, different forms of thought and, um, and availability of resources and what those resources mean and what they do and what they support, right? 
so these are all things that need to exist, whether or not you have a diver, a neurodiverse strategy. All you're saying is you're hiring somebody different for a different role and that potentially thinks different than what you think, which is like you alluded to before, is already the case. You're always going to hire people that have different ways of thinking about different problems. So that's that's really interesting that, that and good perspective that you share there. Because ultimately, the more that I think about it, and like I prefaced at the beginning, this is definitely a topic that's new to me. But the more that I learn about it, the more that we talk about it, it's it makes me think that it's quite possible that we're just being lazy. We're being lazy in how we think about making the workplace more diverse in any way. And we think that we need to follow practices that have been developed years and years ago so that we can run a business rather than help people develop and help people grow. And human capital is our most important asset in an organization, regardless of how you think, regardless of how you look, and regardless of what you believe in. Yeah, and and I I, I stepped in when you uh, when you're talking about are we just being lazy? And I, I'm doing that only because it's my own learning around how do we approach people you know with ADHD who are struggling who appear lazy because they don't want to do work or. Um, and I don't think organizations are being lazy. I think they have, and this is coming, you know, from Ross Green, who who does a lot about collaborative, um, proactive uh, problem solving. And he talks about, you know, people do well when they can. And when businesses aren't um, addressing issues, I don't know that they're being lazy. I feel like they don't have the tools and the understanding they need to feel confident in moving forward. And I think, you know, we, I don't want to oversimplify that. We just need to create some better human understanding and, and supports. It is, there are some very real changes that need to happen in terms of how do you accommodate. Um, and organizations need specific support to be able to do this well, right? And so they need to be able to be resourced with the information and the tools to be able to create that understanding and make those changes. Um, and so I, I, I would hate to say that, are organizations just being lazy? I don't think so. I think they just haven't stepped into full awareness and committed to really, as you said, putting their resources on human development within their organization. Because that's where they need to be investing at this point in time is how do we develop our human capacity um, by making sure we have all of the tools and supports we can for the broadest range of human potential. That makes sense. That is a much more politically accurate response <laughs> to what I was saying, to be clear. <laughs> um, so I appreciate you cleaning up the language that I used uh, and made it a bit more, a lot more practical and a lot more accurate. Uh, but yes, and but I guess to that to that end, how do these organizations get the resources mm -hmm. they need? How do they get the information they need in order to now start to drive that change uh, within their orgs? Yeah. This really requires a partnership with the ecosystem. 
And for any organization that think they can do it alone with their own internal service, their own internal resources, uh, I think they're going to be challenged and uh, not well equipped. This really is an ecosystem uh, solution that we have to look at. And so in that ecosystem, we really need to be looking at who are the partners and consultants that can help drive this. And there are a number of great consultancies out there like Specialist Stern, um, Divergent, Autocon, um, and I can, you know, I can forward you another list, but, and Deloitte has a ready, willing and able program. There are a number of consultancies out there who have invested the time and energy to help support the talent life cycle from beginning to end around neurodiverse uh, populations. And so any organization wanting to do this, uh, wanting to really incorporate neurodiversity on their EDI strategy, I think they need to partner with a consultancy to really get the full perspective on in terms of what they need to do, as well as the resources. Um, and then you can build capability internally, right? There's uh, companies are hiring, you know, accommodation consultants internally to really help make sure that they are creating the programs they need. Um, and then you need to partner with the neurodiverse community. You need to get people, you know, you need to get people's voices at the table. And so you need to build these programs and build um, these HR practices in this culture by including different pe you know, people of different neurotypes and getting their perspective and inputs. Um, and you also need to be looking at perhaps, you know, also the counseling and support um, the, you know, therapy community in terms of how can you partner with um, service providers that can help support the mental well-being and integration of, of you know, not just your neurodiverse population, but also your, your talent as well, as we kind of want to improve mental health in the workplace generally. So I think we really need to look at the ecosystem approach here and making sure that we're getting all the right players at the table to support the change in this area. Yeah, that's really helpful. And is, do you believe that the consultancy approach is still accessible even to maybe, let's say, a smaller organization that might not necessarily have those resources or even potentially the budget to bring somebody on to develop that for them? And if not, is there another place where they can become a lot more informed on how to implement some of these strategies? Yeah, and so some of, you know, some of these uh, consultancies, um, like Specialist Stern, have, have resources to help support smaller businesses. And I think it would be worth, you know, finding a consultancy and start to have the conversation. Uh, any good consultancy will not only do the work, but they'll help you resource yourself to do it uh, at times. You know, and sometimes that might be bringing in a full-time FTE to help create the program, someone who has experience. And so there are ways that even smaller organizations can look at doing this, um, you know, in within scale and, and on budget. So there are um, a couple of, there's a couple of great books out there, you know, that support the HR community around creating more neurodiverse um, workforce. And I'm happy to share those references um, for you to share after the, the podcast. Awesome. So thank you so much. But before we go, yeah, where can people learn more about what you're doing and uh, get in touch with you if they want to chat a little bit more about this? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, they can visit our website. So we're peopleinbusinessinc.com. So peopleinbusinessinc.com. Uh, this is a venture with myself and my partner, Tatiana, who is a clinical psychologist and an organizational psychologist. Um, and really, we are about um, helping build that human capability in business so that businesses can be more socially uh, inclusive and just. Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn and uh, check out our new LinkedIn profile. I mean, we're, we're just launching this business, so um, would love to have people join us on LinkedIn as well. 
Awesome. Amanda, thank you so much for taking the time to join. This is an unbelievable conversation. I think it's one that we need to continue to have more of um, because I don't think we talk enough about it as well. Yeah. Um, and I hope that, you know, folks listen to this and, and understand the importance of it and even reach out to you to continue the conversation with somebody who is well-informed uh, and invested in, in moving this cause forward um, so that we can all become and have more neurodiverse workforces. Right. Well, thank you so much for, for giving me the time, Marie. It's been, I've loved our conversations and so would absolutely love to continue the conversation with you and anyone else who's willing to have it at this point. Awesome. Thanks so much, Amanda. My pleasure. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find all of the references made in the episode in the show notes. If you're a fan of the show and enjoyed the episode, don't forget to like and share if you're listening on social media. Or subscribe if you're on YouTube or your preferred podcast platform. I love to hear feedback, so don't hesitate to reach out if you have any suggestions for the show or questions. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter under the handle I am Rui Nunes. Until next time, keep growing. <laughs>